Hello and welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Christina Souza Ma, and with me is our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman. Hello, Dr. Woolman. Greetings to you, Christina, and greetings, everyone. Welcome to Magical Medical Tour. I'm Dr. Glenn Wallman. I will be your medical guide today, along with Christina, as we search yet another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy, always looking for ways for optimal health. And today we're going to be uh, with a returning uh, professor, uh, former assistant professor, Dr. James Lake, who is an integrative holistic psychiatrist. Uh, we were with him. If you look at episode 131, I would highly recommend that for everyone to get to know Dr. Lake and and the things that he speaks about and believes in. It's one of those episodes where I keep listening to it and find something new in it each time. We're going to be meeting him in a moment. Christina, if someone wants to get in touch with us, how do they do that? Yes, at any time during this show, you can feel free to ask a question or make a comment simply by scrolling down on your screen and typing it into the comment box. And if you are listening to this um, through audio, like a podcast, um, you could simply just give us a call at 818-LET'S-TALK. 818-LET'S-TALK. Be sure to leave us your contact information and we will get right back to you. Thank you, Dr. Glenn Woolman. Uh, you're so welcome. And everybody, check out my new Facebook page, The Medical Guide, and please like it. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Yay! Uh, so, without further ado, I would like to introduce and welcome back to our show, Dr. James Lake. Welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here again. Good Hello, Dr. You. Lake. How are you? Uh, Christina, doing fine up here. Happy for the rain. Oh, wonderful. wonderful to finally see some rain falling out of the sky. Yes, finally. It's good for all of us here in California, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. James, we, we have a lot to discuss today, but before we actually start uh, with the... Uh, program, I would like to do a curbside consult on my own mental health, if you don't mind. Oh, dear. <laughs> of course. You're okay no, he actually agreed. <laughs> hey, Christina, I may slip you into it. Be careful. Oh, dear, because I'm the cause of all the ruckus. <laughs> uh, so, James, when I was growing up, uh, before kindergarten, my parents started uh, teaching me how to integrate with people and learning social uh, skills. And then I went into kindergarten and all through school, always learning skills to be polite, be courteous, be nice to people, tell people we like them, et cetera, et cetera, right? So a few moments ago, you listened to me uh, ask everybody to go to my Facebook page, The Medical Guide, and be sure to like it. So I'm concerned about that because it's difficult for me to uh, become intimate with people like that and ask them to like me or to even share me or to follow me. And I know <laughs> that kids today are, it's almost mandatory part of their relationship. Someone uh, clicks out a selfie of themselves and they expect all their friends to make comments very quickly. And if they don't, there's a whole pecking order going on. So I want to know uh, the fact that it's difficult for me to ask that, do I have a mental disorder? And only, <laughs> only in that area now. Let's not get crazy. Glenn, um, you've, asked, you've raised an important issue here, which is um, the, the broader social consequences of, of the pervasive use of social media, Facebook and so forth, on individuals in general, and perhaps individuals who may be uh, somewhat more socially awkward or more shy than others. For example, um, uh, according to recent surveys, um, children between the ages of about 8 and 16 spend about nine hours on average daily on their iPhones, checking their nine. Facebook page. Wow. Nine hours daily, exactly. And if wow. you can imagine that kids who may be perhaps a bit more shy and more socially awkward than others, spending more time than that. So this uh, technology that Apple and Facebook have introduced to facilitate um, increased contact, um, closeness um, between people of all ages, and in fact, in fact, is facilitating increased separation, increased distance, if you will, um, perhaps even more so among um, children and adolescents who have not yet developed social skills for reaching out beyond the use of these 
these technology-based means of communicating that were invented within the past few decades. Mm. So it is a social issue. It's become uh, one. It's, it's commonly discussed in Congresses uh, by psychiatrists, social workers, psychologists. Is a growing concern because people use the technology to stay away, not to become closer. Mm -hmm. hmm. I wonder if any of those kids that are on for nine hours have been diagnosed with attention deficit disorders. That will be an interesting question to ask. <laughs> All right. So I'm not mentally disordered in this particular area anyway? You are someone who may have been socially awkward as a youngster mm -hmm. and who <laughs> if the, uh, perhaps as, a, as an Thanks, ulcer. Thanks, Christina. <laughs> I'm in the and, same boat. And look at us, we we're are. doing a show now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And let's say, hypothetically, had the technology that exists now with social media, Facebook, and so forth, been available to us, you know, 30, 40 years ago, it might have changed our trajectory of, of evolving into uh, adolescents and adults that we became. For example, we would not have had to solve the problems of getting beyond our social awkwardness and becoming um, um, part of uh, the day-to-day -day interactions that everyone had to uh, learn how to um, achieve, how to go into, grow into, if you will, before this technology was available and became pervasive. Uh, these these techniques for texting and using iPhones and so forth and social media to permit avoiding on a mass scale direct social contact did not exist. So people who were shy, who were socially awkward, if you will, perhaps people who are on what is now called the Asperger's uh, uh, disorder spectrum, uh, would not have had to face their fears, their social anxieties, would not have had to overcome them, if you will. So perhaps it, um, it, it, it is a handicap for those people who are shy today because there's no need to, um, to face that awkwardness and to go beyond that social anxiety and integrating in with other people, becoming part of the mainstream. Thank you for that. I want to move to something that's happening in the world today. We're seeing things locally in California, nationally, and many different places and around the world where there's a lot of um, killings. People are being shot, explosions, a lot of people dying. Uh, and this is affecting a lot of people. So I want to talk about post-traumatic stress disorder. And I... I want to put it into the aspect of, I think from the beginning of time, we've always had uh, people warring with each other and fighting. And I know that there's probably been issues throughout history, but suddenly it's become a disorder. So the first thing I'd like to know is how does something become an actual disorder? Many people that I listen to that are not in the medical profession always say, oh, it's the pharmaceutical companies that are just trying to promote a new drug, so let's name a disorder and then we can have a drug. So would you address that for a moment first and then let's get into the process of post-traumatic stress disorder and what we need to know about it? Of course. These are very topical questions. I think... Um Many people, not only in North America, but in other developed world regions, are concerned about this phenomenon, as you describe it, of um, disorders being uh, created, perhaps invented in some cases. And the question is whether these reflect actual symptoms, and they are valid disorders that reflect actual mental health problems that occur in the world outside of academic discussions. Within the American Psychiatric Association, there are committees that meet on a regular basis to review the criteria for diagnosis and classifying particular symptoms into or constructing particular symptoms into what we call disorders in this culture and other world systems of medicine, they don't have a concept that's equivalent to a disorder. They look at um, symptoms and symptom patterns. Uh, the word in Chinese translates most accurately into symptom pattern, for example. The concept is that it's constantly changing and in flux. There's no fixed uh, disorder or fixed constellation of unchangeable symptoms, if you will. In Western psychiatry, of which the American Psychiatric Association is the, uh, the recognized authority for determining criteria for diagnosing uh, psychiatric disorders, 
There is a Bible or guide for diagnosis, as you know, called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. About two years ago in 2013, DSM-5 was released, which um, which was hailed initially by the APA and many conservative psychiatrists as a, as a major breakthrough in not only diagnosing psychiatric disorders, but in developing a newer, perhaps better way of systematizing diagnosis. Uh, disorders in relationship to other disorders. However, there's been enormous criticism of that process, uh, beginning with the time of its publishing in 2013. I'll get to that in a moment. Um, but to go back to your basic question about how psychiatric disorders are diagnosed, conceptualized, it has to do with consensus among psychiatrists and psychologists about the kinds of symptoms that hang together, if you will, in a consistent way um, that um, seem to recur again and again that form a kind of a, a, an entity or pattern, a fixed pattern. As I said, um, in other cultures, other world systems of medicine, they don't have the same concept of these fixed recurring patterns of symptoms. They talk about symptoms and symptoms changing and patterns of symptoms changing over time. In, in Western psychiatry, again, of which the APA is the recognized authority on diagnosis and classification of mental disorders. The DSM process has been ongoing since the 1950s. And this is the fifth um, revision, uh, actually more than five uh, times revision of the DSM. And uh, the, the idea is that if you, um, if you identify a particular um, set of symptoms as a particular disorder, it gives legitimacy to the diagnosis of, of that disorder in Western psychiatry and also to other world regions that don't use Western psychiatry. And that, by extension, gives legitimacy to, as you alluded to earlier, Dr. Wollman, to prescribing a medication or recommending another uh, technique to address that disorder, so-called disorder. Now, what happened in the DSM-5 and the reason it's so controversial is that even before the DSM-5 was published, many psychiatrists, including academic psychiatrists, as well as people who do clinical practice, make their living seeing patients, working in clinics, outpatient, inpatient psychiatrists, were quite upset because uh, it was very clear, even during the process of developing the DSM-5, that that the committees that were given responsibility for reviewing the diagnostic criteria had not done their job adequately. Uh, the APA committees that were uh, given the task of reevaluating uh, diagnostic criteria, for example, for different kinds of disorders, mood disorders, childhood disorders, psychotic disorders, never got to the point of uh, engaging in the field trials that the APA process requires to to find out whether the diagnostic criteria really matched um, symptoms that are observed in patients, in thousands of patients who are treated uh, every day by psychiatrists. They never got to that point because they ran out of time and they ran out of funding. So a decision was made in the APA leadership at some point in time to stop the process um, and polish what they had uh, at that time in the absence of um, confirmatory findings from field trials that have been originally intended as part of the APA uh, process for reviewing and um, uh, ideally improving the diagnostic criteria and the methods for getting to rigorous, uh, more accurate, more complete sets of criteria for making psychiatric diagnoses. That didn't happen. And because of that, several leading psychiatrists, among them Alan Francis, uh, emeritus professor at Duke University, um, who was the chair of the efforts to revise the DSM and the DSM-4 process. He has come out with, I think, very legitimate, very um, concerning criticisms of, of a range of deficits, not only in the diagnostic categories in DSM-5, but the methods that led to the establishment of DSM-5, including the absence of validated uh, findings from field trials, because they were skipped. Now, going to the point of PTSD, PTSD um, has been called many things over decades, if not centuries. There's some evidence that in Henry IV, one of Shakespeare's plays, um, a, a character was experiencing what we would now call PTSD. 
um, one of the soldiers in the play in Henry IV's army at that time. And that play was written in the 16th century by Shakespeare. The, the diagnosis has variously been um, phrased uh, as uh, soldier's heart, battle fatigue, combat fatigue. Only in the late 1970s and early 1980s was it reformulated and renamed post-traumatic stress disorder. And initially, uh, it applied to um, people who had undergone extraordinary trauma, who had survived um, life-threatening um, trauma, uh, especially in the context of combat. Over the past three or four decades, that concept has evolved somewhat so that now people qualify for the Western psychiatric diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder if they have um, experienced sexual trauma and assault. And more recently in the DSM-5, according to the new criteria, if they have witnessed trauma. If you have witnessed trauma and you have some symptoms of, uh, of recurring nightmares, elevated startle response, hypervigilance, avoidance behavior, uh, numbing, and so forth, you may qualify for a diagnosis of PTSD, even though you may not have uh, been exposed to or survived life-threatening trauma. So the criteria for P PTSD, um, now that they've been revised uh, with the most recent um, edition of DSM-5, have been further changed so that an enormous number of people who until now would not have been uh, eligible would not have qualified for a PTSD diagnosis now qualify. And furthermore, uh, there is a legitimate perception among drug industry and, and psychiatrists who prescribe medications that these symptoms are an appropriate and legitimate target for psychotropic medication prescribing. So one problem, uh, the problem in changing the criteria for DSM opens the gate and some would argue the floodgate to inappropriate and overprescribing of psychotropic medications for disorders that until recently would not have been viewed as disorders. The symptoms would have been regarded as sub-threshold symptoms or minor symptoms. That not only applies to PTSD, but it applies to attention deficit disorder, some mood disorders, including bipolar disorder, which are now viewed as legitimate disorders and legitimate reasons for prescribing psychotropic medications, even though until the DSM-5 was published, they would have been viewed as sub-threshold symptoms, which were not appropriate for prescribing. So, James, when, when you said, uh, aside from experience, experiencing some, something drastic, witnessing it, now, because of the social media that we alluded to a little while ago, uh, earlier in the show, <clears throat> So many people are able to watch things happening live in Paris, live, live in San Bernardino, in all of these areas, and we're watching it. We're being bombarded with it uh, 24 hours a day in every way we can be. Does that now become uh, an example of witnessing it, or do you actually have to be in a facility to, or at a site to, to be someone who might develop a post-traumatic stress disorder? This is a very important question. And my view on this is that, my understanding is that some clinicians would argue that witnessing trauma, even as indirectly as watching a TV news report or watching a webcast of the recent, um, the recent terror attacks in Paris or in San Bernardino, California, here in California, would, and resulting in symptoms of nightmares, elevated startle response, uh, avoidance, psychic numbing, and so forth, uh, would qualify as a certain kind of PTSD. It would qualify. It would meet the diagnostic criteria. You no longer have to directly witness. You can hear about uh, a, a trauma from a, a friend or a colleague who had witnessed the trauma, and you can develop symptoms of distress or stress, including the ones I've mentioned, and you would potentially qualify for a diagnosis of either PTSD or acute stress disorder. I need to mention a distinction between these two. Acute stress disorder essentially includes all of the, the symptoms that make up post-traumatic stress disorder, but according to the criteria, it, it uh, resolves within one month following the date of exposure to the trauma, whether that's direct or indirect exposure to the trauma itself. If the, if the symptoms persist 
after one month uh, from the time of the trauma itself, and then you shift into what's called post-traumatic stress disorder. Some individuals, many individuals, have what's called delayed onset of PTSD, where they may not begin to develop symptoms for several months after the trauma or the uh, knowledge of the trauma from a conversation or perhaps watching a video. So the criteria for diagnosing PTSD have really shifted in ways that I think are causing a great deal of debate and controversy among psychiatrists and the public community. Again, uh, Glenn, as I mentioned, because if you can point to a what appears to be a legitimate psychiatric diagnosis, then it it opens the opportunity, the possibility for psychiatrists and family physicians who treat the majority of these kinds of problems um, to prescribe medications that may not be appropriate and that may get in the way of recovery in some cases. So there, there, in my mind right now, there might be two types of people out there. People that already have a post-traumatic stress disorder, for example, someone that came back from Vietnam or someone came back from Afghanistan or Iran or Iraq, they already have it and potentially they're being treated. But there's also people that have never had a stress disorder. So I'd like to have you talk for a few moments about what the treatment is right now, the general treatment for someone who has it, and what you would suggest also for people now that are watching all these and are possibly susceptible to a stress disorder. Mm -hmm. What do they have to look for to potentially prevent it? Okay. When you're, when you're thinking about post-traumatic stress disorder or acute stress disorder, there are three ways of approaching this. Either through resiliency training, um, enhancing the set of skills, if you will, or, or, um, or taking a supplement that makes the brain more um, resilient um, against the possibility of developing um, symptoms of, of trauma, following exposure to trauma. The second would be what would be called secondary prevention. That would apply to people who have been exposed to trauma who have not yet developed symptoms of PTSD. What you can do in the immediate aftermath of trauma or hearing about trauma, uh, in the case I mentioned before. And the third would be the treatment of cases of chronic established post-traumatic stress disorder. They're related, but they're different in important ways. The, the conventional wisdom in, um, in biomedical psychiatry is that there are certain kinds of psychotropic medications and certain kinds of psychotherapy that are beneficial for treating chronic established post-traumatic stress disorder. The medications that have some efficacy for this are the serotonin reuptake inhibitors, the Prozacs, Paxils, and so forth of the world. For more severe cases of um, PTSD, um, when an individual is experiencing severe uh, insomnia, severe uh, disturbing recurring nightmares, going back to the trauma itself, flashbacks, and so forth, it's often appropriate and helpful to take a small dose of an antipsychotic, usually at bedtime, to help with sleep and to take away the severity of those symptoms. These treatments are often effective, but they're not effective for the whole uh, constellation of PTSD core symptoms as we describe them. So in terms of resilience training and um, secondary prevention of PTSD, Western biomedical psychiatry doesn't really offer anything of value. And uh, the limitations in both efficacy of these established conventional treatments as well as safety problems associated with psychotropic drugs and so forth, in my view, invite a rigorous consideration for the whole range of complementary and alternative treatments that can be used safely and effectively alone or together with psychotropic medications. For example, it's been shown in recent studies in New Zealand and in Japan following a very major earthquake in New Zealand a few years ago and the tsunami in um, Japan, that individuals who were taking high doses of, of omega-3 fatty acids um, for their health or for other reasons prior to the earthquake in New Zealand, in Auckland, and prior to the tsunami in Japan had a much uh, lower chance or at much lower risk of developing PTSD in the weeks following that trauma. 
So that's a significant finding. Other studies are ongoing to, t- to bear that out, where individuals who are at high risk of exposure to trauma because of their occupations, such as firefighters, um, uh, military personnel, paramedics, and so forth, are being given um, omega-3 fatty acids ongoing. And then at a time uh, when they may um, be exposed to trauma through their work, through combat, and so forth, they will be studied and assessed to determine whether uh, the the rate at which they may uh, evolve into full-blown PTSD is significantly different than individuals who are not taking those essential fatty acids. There are other natural products that are being tested as well that show some promise. There's a a multi-nutrient formula that has been used widely to treat bipolar disorder, for example, and which may also be beneficial for uh, at least mitigating the severity of PTSD following trauma if you are using it ongoing before exposure to trauma. And this uh, formula is called Empower Plus. And uh, it has an interesting track record with respect to bipolar disorder and perhaps autistic spectrum disorders as well. In cases of established PTSD, among uh, combat veterans and so forth, there are two very interesting and and promising uh, technology-based interventions that are proving to be quite effective. Um, Although they're not yet used widely among the VA clinics or the DOD clinics for active duty military, and these include the virtual reality exposure therapy, which uses an advanced um, graphics uh, uh, interconnection with the individual in the computer, head-mounted display with the goal of simulating the trauma-invoking situation to cause the individual who is traumatized and who has PTSD to relive or re-experience trauma again and again with guidance from a trained therapist in the hope that they will um, eventually react less severely, less strongly. In other words, they will be habituated to the trauma. The trauma itself will be extinguished by repeated exposure through the virtual environment. The other technology-based treatment for PTSD that's quite promising is EEG biofeedback or neurobiofeedback. And Mm -hmm. that's been demonstrated to be quite effective for combat veterans, even with severe PTSD symptoms. These are being looked at but uh, within the VA and other clinics. But again, they have not yet been (coughs) excuse me, brought into the uh, mainstream in terms of clinical care. James, you brought up omega-3s and you brought up the uh, other uh, herbal-type medication, the Empower. What was it? Empower? Empower Plus. Empower Plus. It's called Empower Plus, and it's out of Canada. It's now widely used to treat bipolar disorder and autism spectrum disorders. It's a micronutrient formula um, that can be used alone or taken together with psychotropic medications. There are safety issues that come up uh, when taking it together with psychotropics. There are uh, potential for toxic interactions when combining with mood stabilizers, for example. So it's very important to be very careful when considering trying this nutrient formula and to take it only under the medical supervision of a physician who knows about the formula and the potential safety risks so um, it, uh, it, it's promising. There are um, findings, typically from open trials, um, not so much from double-blind placebo-controlled trials because of problems uh, that the manufacturer of this supplement has had uh, getting adequate funding for a large multi-center placebo-controlled trial. But this has been in the background of the dialogue in terms of alternative treatments for mood disorders uh, for Many years, and it's it's uh, it's quite promising. And there's some early data that it might be beneficial for um, reducing the severity, as I mentioned, of post-traumatic stress disorder if it's taken ongoing before exposure to a trauma, and ongoing after that time. It 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 optimizes brain function and and indirectly uh, helps the individual at many levels in brain function to be more resilient in the face of the kinds of neurochemical shifts that may occur following trauma. So there's a lot of promise there. I don't believe there's been yet a placebo-controlled study uh, on this particular clinical application of Empower Plus. But it might be of interest to your program to interview the people who, who do these studies 
and to find out you know more specifics about ongoing research in this area because I think it would be of great interest to your viewers, to your listeners. I think so too, but I also want to bring up the concept for a moment. When we talk about things like omega-3 fatty acid, where it's just a supplement, you don't need a prescription for it. And there are many other things that in the integrative medicine world that we've seen over the years, for example, when ginkgo biloba started becoming very, very popular for improving brain function, and then we found out that it shouldn't be taken necessarily with anticoagulants because it really has vascular issues. I want to I want to get your opinion on just because something is a simple supplement, uh, such as omega threes. We've seen people say, "Oh, it's good for uh, arthritis," and it's good for many other disorders. And as we go through the science of it and actually start to prove it, we're not seeing all of these yet. So my concern is that people will just start taking the omega-3s or something else. Do you think that if somebody is starting to take something like a supplement that's an over-the-counter thing that you can get in a health food store and they're taking it for an actual disorder that they should do it through their doctor or just do it on their own and see what happens? That's a very good question. Let me go back to the first part of your question, which is, um, is there adequate um, data from well-designed studies on omega-3s for psychiatric disorders? There is um, good data, and I believe adequate data, to show that omega-3s are beneficial as add-ons to antidepressants and mood stabilizers for depressed mood, both in unipolar depression as well as in bipolar depression. And there have been many studies uh, of this supplement over many years now, including very large, well-designed studies that bear this out consistently. <clears throat> so it's not a question of efficacy or whether efficacy has been demonstrated, nor is it a question of safety. There have been um, uh, several reports of um, elevated bleeding time, but not increased bleeding when omega-3s are taken in individuals who are on anticoagulants such as Coumadin and heparin. And again, um, PT, PTT, but not, not actual increased risk of bleeding. Typically, um, when individuals have side effects, when they take uh, high-purity, large-dose omega-3s, they're more likely to have problems with uh, nausea or indigestion. But the American Heart Association, for example, um, widely recommends to uh, individuals who are healthy as well as individuals who have heart disease to include um, uh, food sources in the diet that are very high in omega-3s, for example, flaxseed um, and fish as a preventive for heart health. Um, many people who take omega-3s, who see a cardiologist for a, a heart problem, take these under the supervision and recommendation, uh, with a recommendation from their cardiologist. By the same token, many people who have um, common mental health problems, including the ones I mentioned, depression and bipolar disorder, often take these with the uh, knowledge and the recommendation of their physician their psychiatrist or their family physician. Typically, um, in my case and among my colleagues, we recommend taking a particular dose that is known to be efficacious for depression or another mental health problem. And we recommend that the individual make sure to uh, uh, obtain a, a quality brand of omega-3 uh, fatty acids to ensure that they're free of contamination. Um, pe people, Some people who take... Uh, Poor quality supplements, although the supplements themselves are safe, might be subjecting themselves to contaminants. And um, the omega-3s that arrive from fish oil products, for example, if you're not careful to process out um, the, the contaminants, there is a risk of heavy metal contamination from fish that are farmed, not wild-caught salmon and so forth, but fish that are farmed. There can be toxins within them. So it's important to not only uh, know about the, the kind of natural supplement to take, the amount to take that might be efficacious for a particular disorder. In the case of bipolar disorder or depression, it's probably one to two grams a day of omega-3 fatty acids. And then also, finally, to know about quality brands and how to obtain a quality brand of an omega-3 or another natural product, a very a reliable um, source of information for determining quality brands and safe brands is consumerlab, consumerlab.com. I think they do an excellent job. 
you can uh, pay a small amount and have an ongoing subscription to Consumer Labs, which will give you access to data comparing both efficacy, safety, and cost on the range of supplements for both medical and psychiatric purposes. Excellent. Uh, Before we get off PTSD, as an integrative holistic psychiatrist, and now I want to focus on people that do not have a disorder at this point, but have been overwhelmed by uh, Planned Parenthood uh, invasion and the invasion in Paris and everywhere else, and and more may be coming. Do you have any suggestions of, of things that people can do aside from taking medications? To reduce the chance. Of, no, to reduce um, the chance. You know, meditation or their exercises mm-hmm. or their mental exercises, etc. There, there's a lot of good evidence from studies on combat veterans that mindfulness training um, and, and yoga and other mind-body practices can reduce the severity of PTSD symptoms and increase the the rate of returning to normal functioning. Uh, you have to do it consistently, and you have to do it in a way that um, that adequately addresses these kinds of problems. A problem with that approach is that um, many people with PTSD, especially the recently returning combat veterans from the Middle East, are so severely impaired, it's difficult for them to, to get motivated and go to um, courses or clinics that offer mindfulness training or yoga. There is a special kind of um, cognitive behavioral therapy that the VA has developed and is offered uh, widely through the VA mental health clinics, which is called cognitive behavioral, uh, sorry, mindfulness-based cognitive behavioral therapy. It's very effective. It includes elements of cognitive therapy, such as reframing, uh, distancing uh, from the from the event itself, uh, in 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 the context of ongoing training and practice and mindfulness meditation, to lower the level of autonomic arousal to to kind of if you will, lower the, the intensity or the valence of the fight-or-flight response that people may have for months or years following exposure to trauma and combat or another potentially um, uh, lethal situation that causes PTSD. Mm. Interesting. Um, if I may, for just a moment, I, I had, don't know also if you might have heard, one of our guests by the name of um, David Bercelli has uh, been working very closely with veterans. He was actually sponsored by a company in Japan after the um, the tsunami hit. And he was brought in. He has uh, um, a technique that he works through the body, working with the person uh, in their body, that seems to have really helped many, many thousands of people already. And so he gets invited to different countries to work with groups that have gone through large cases of trauma. Hmm. I'm not familiar with, with his name, um, but I would love to, to meet him yes. and exchange notes with him. There is a kind of therapy called somatically focused cognitive therapy of which he might uh, do his own particular variant and, and developed mm-hmm. expertise on. And EMDR is also another um, um, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapy is another kind of psychological or mind-body technique mm-hmm. that might be related indirectly to the kind of work that he does with veterans. The idea is to reintegrate um, body and mind uh, with the understanding that people who are severely traumatized and uh, impaired have, in a way, um, lost the capacity or now have a diminished capacity to to smoothly integrate uh, mind and body they dissociate they 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 don't have the same ability to regulate intense emotions as people do who have not experienced trauma and who are scarred by it so these techniques such as uh, EMDR and somatically focused cognitive therapy are integral techniques if you will that help people to um, to Mm, reintegrate uh, mind and body to become more coherent, more functioning beings. So I'm guessing that that he does something along those lines. Mm. But I would mm. enjoy being in contact with him and, and exchanging notes. Mm, shall do. Or maybe we can do a show together. <laughs> that would be fun. <laughs> that would be. would be fun. 
I want to shift to another uh, topic now. Those people that listen to this show or watch the show uh, over the years have known that I used to work in emergency medicine. And for most of those years in my practice, I always worked Christmas Eve night and Christmas Day night for over almost 20 years. Those were two shifts that I always worked. I didn't have any children, so I thought the doctors that had kids should be off and I would work those and then I would usually try and get off for the holidays that I liked more. And it was always, you know, it was a great season. Everybody was decking the halls and singing joy to the world and fa-la-la-ing around. But when we worked those shifts at night, we saw something rather remarkable. There seemed to be an inordinate amount of people that came in uh, with something related to anger or depression. We would see uh, suicide attempts, people taking razor blades to their neck or to their wrists. Some of them were attempted and unsuccessful. Others were successful. Drug overdoses because of sadness and depression. And then there was the anger part also where the father uh, was uh, listening to the kids uh, saying they want something. They see all these toys and, and things on television and he didn't have enough money so he would get upset. And he would end up uh, beating his wife, beating his children. The kids would come in. There was an inordinate amount of this over Christmas when it's supposed to be a beautiful, happy holiday of sharing and peace and joy. First of all, I want to talk about why you think that might be, if you think that it is. But just in general, what can we do for the t people that right now are going through sadness and anger during this particular holiday season? Mm -hmm. Very important themes. Thank you for bringing them up. And uh, in my uh, clinical practice day to day, I encounter patients who are struggling uh, with the same things that you've uh, seen, that you've seen over your career as an emergency medical physician. I think the reason that this happens perhaps more so during the holiday season uh, than in um, normal times is that there is a, a, uh, a bigger uh, relative gap between people's expectations of how the world should be and how families should be and how they should be and how things really are at this time because mm -hmm. of all the social messages we were flooded with day to day um, through social media, through television, through print media and so forth. People are expected and they are given to expect and believe that this is a time of rejoicing and joyous reunion and flourishing and celebrating uh, reunion with family, going to one spiritual place and doing work, um, and so forth. And because the world is complex, and because uh, many families, many individuals have a lot of scar tissue left over from um, their histories, um, people, as they encounter these expectations, find that they ring false. Um, they, they don't mm. fit in any manner what they've experienced in their lives so far, and certainly they don't fit um, what they're experiencing as they go home to their dysfunctional family and observe the alcohol abuse, and observe the emotional abuse, perhaps physical abuse. Their careers, their personal lives might be um, in a very, very bad place. Uh, they might be disappointed with their relationship, with their work. All of these disappointments, concerns, and emotional scars are accentuated and felt, uh, felt more intensely. Uh, more, more, um, they're more disappointing to people who have these issues ongoing during the holidays, as I said, because there is a larger gap between what we are given to expect by social media and the way the world really is. And one way of framing this problem is to call it kind of um, social-wide cognitive dissonance, mm. a mismatch, if you will, between what we are led to expect and want to believe will be true in our lives and in society in general and what is in fact the case. It's even much worse now, of course, given the 14-year uh, long war uh, against uh, terror and so forth, which has recently been brought to the U.S. and Paris. People have an inordinate amount, to use your word, an inordinate amount of fear that um, uh, terrorism might strike anywhere, any moment, and affect them directly. It has. It happened last week in San Bernardino, close to where um, Christine lives. And it may happen again 
there's no guarantee. People are living with fear. They're living with fear, and they don't know what to do with it. They don't know how to bring that into their lives, their lived world day to day, how to integrate that, how to be at peace with that. And many people don't have a spiritual tradition. They don't have a kind of a base that gives them um, a sense of clarity and purpose and peace, if you will, in the face of not only their day-to-day psychological and work-related stress issues, but in the face of the broader questions of life, life's meaning. What if I am killed? What if I'm in the wrong place in the wrong time? And a terrorist comes in and with automatic weapons, and I'm part of the casualty list next week, you know, somewhere in Ohio or somewhere in the Bay Area. What then? People realize that they don't, they haven't done this work. They're not ready. They may not be ready. And they're facing a time where these things could happen. They've happened to dozens, over 100 innocent people in Paris. They've happened recently in um, many countries, and they've happened a week ago in San Bernardino. So people aren't prepared uh, for this kind of trauma. Uh, many people haven't done the spiritual or deep psychological work to be at peace with their maker, if, if that's part of their belief system. And many people um, before these kinds of stresses were all about um, uh, came came to adulthood with significant psychological scars from childhood abuse or neglect. So this is the case for people who are functioning, working, um, and going about their day-to-day lives. If you have a mental health problem already, if you have a, a serious mental health issue, for example, depression, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, if you have an alcohol abuse problem or another drug abuse problem, and you go into this time of year where uh, people are expected uh, by society and by their relatives and friends to be functioning, to be joyous, to, partic- to participate in these shared celebrations of the end of the year and whatever spiritual tradition you follow, and you realize that you not only can't function, but you're depressed, you're not in the game, you don't know what to do, you feel helpless, you don't know where to go for help, uh, it gives you, uh, it accentuates and uh, your feelings of helplessness, of powerlessness, if you will, to the point where you might go into a full-blown crisis. You might, um, you might even consider uh, ending your life if you feel so desperate and, and feel so deep despair uh, that you... Uh, feel no other way out. This is a time, therefore, for people who have uh, serious mental health problems, depression, bipolar disorder, alcohol abuse, any other serious mental health problem, to be close to their friends, to be close to their families, to put in place a support plan, whatever that would be. It might involve watching movies. It might involve exercising more. It might involve getting outside more and not staying home and feeling helpless and feeling impaired. Being with people, uh, being with people who will support you if you need them. If you are in AA or an NA, um, asking for help from your sponsor, going to groups more often. Um, And and conversely, if you are going home for the holidays and you know that you'll face something quite difficult or disappointing, to have a a kind of a fallback plan. If things um, get sketchy and are disappointing and you're back where you were when you were a child and the, the memories of trauma or abuse come back up for you, to find, um, put in place a plan before going home so that you can back away from that, find safety, find people who can support you, avoid direct contact that could be traumatizing again, you know, years and years after the fact. It's a time to be careful, cautious, conservative, and put in place uh, not only an adequate support plan, um, if you are functioning but a very strong plan, a very thought, a very well thought out plan. If you are struggling with a mental health problem or alcohol or drug abuse, how about the people that don't necessarily have a problem, uh, and we're coming to this time, and there might be something? Is there something preventive that we can do that everyone should just generally do during these extra st- stressful times? As I mentioned, um, my my understanding from doing this work for um, over 20 years now as a psychiatrist is that uh, most people who are well-adjusted um, find the holidays very difficult to get through um, because of uh, 
the enormous gap between what we're led to expect by society and now social media and, and the way life really is. There are huge problems with the economy. Uh, most people come from families that have complex issues. Uh, substance abuse, alcohol abuse, at least in this country, is 35 to 50% of the adult population. Now we add the layers of uh, recent terrorist attacks on Western soil, including in California. So I think most people who function quite well are concerned with these um, kinds of issues and are affected even more so by them around the holidays because of that gap that they feel between the expectations that they're given to believe and the way life really is. In terms of prevention or making it softer, easier during this time, I always go to basic lifestyle recommendations. And by lifestyle, I mean exercise. I mean making sure that uh, you're eating well, that, you're, that your diet is healthy. Um, that you're sleeping adequately, that you're managing your day-to-day -day stress adequately. And that might include listening to music. It might include um, inviting in a friend, a colleague at work, your significant other, and openly sharing um, what you're dealing with at work, what you're dealing with in your life, inviting input, inviting support, inviting validation, if you will, that life is hard and that it's harder for me at this point in time, and I need your insight, I need your support now. It's tough. So inviting support within your established support network, family, friends, perhaps work peers, exercising, uh, good nutrition, stress management, adequate sleep. I always start with the basics. Beyond the, those basics, um, it's often helpful to take um, supplements that can increase your resiliency, if you will, in, in general, such as a high-potency multivitamin, uh, B-complex vitamin. When I was in med school, the B-complex vitamins uh, were called stress tabs because mm -hmm. B vitamins are uh, probably in your case too. B vitamins are more rapidly depleted during times of stress and fatigue. And as you know, Dr. Wolman, they're, they're fundamental for healthy brain functioning. So uh, high-potency B-complex, um, high-potency multivitamin, um, good diet, adequate exercise, adequate sleep, and inviting your friends to support you uh, in any way that, that that makes sense for you. And again, um, being with family or selectively avoiding family, if there are issues related to uh, going back in touch with your family that might uh, remind you of or perhaps even reactivate traumatic memories. Any quick thoughts on the stress of gift giving? I think people... Um, again, as part of the, the uh, ethos of the holidays in Western culture, at least, people are given the expectation that they will be generous and that they will give something to someone, which may not mean anything to them. But this is an imposed expectation. People do it sometimes grudgingly or without a sense that it means anything to them. So I think gift-giving needs to be done um, with insight that it has to do with your intention when you give something, and it has to do with, uh, obviously, the values and um, understanding of the person who receives that gift from you as to what it means, what the gift really means. I know that's kind of a, a vague philosophical kind of answer. That's okay. Uh, that's it, what I was looking for. Christina, any thoughts? Yes, I, I tend to agree with that. It's um, I think what... This is how I feel about how society and commercialism has completed the completely shifted the whole meaning of of Christmas and and so many Absolutely. holidays. You know that that uh, if people can just come down to the basics of gratitude in life, you mm. know, and really look at each day. And and I will say this again and again. Every day, my I pick up my son, and the first thing he knows, the first moment you get in the car, you strap in three things that you're grateful for today. That mm. is because it, I think to connect back to that, even if it's been a hard day, there's got to be three things that you've been grateful for. And if we can reshift that, that thinking that, that, that societal commercial thinking and come back to the basis of, isn't it nice to share food with each other, you know, which mm. is the, the gift from the planet, the gift from nature and not think of the materialistic, <laughs> item you know and it was so funny when my son i said what do you want from santa because he had to write what he wanted from santa and he said mommy i don't know i said well you have always wanted a, a, a your acrobatics mat and he said oh no no that's too expensive for santa <laughs> you know 
so yeah, I kind of went, oh, that's good. That's yeah, good. You're, tra- you're <laughs> you training know? him well. <laughs> yeah, that's because it's like it, it's not about that that piece. It, it, it is uh, that item. It is about what do you really enjoy at this time of the year. And I love Dr. Lake what you said about with people who go through depression. I have a family member that gets so depressed. And she doesn't want to be around everyone during that time because it depresses her more. And I've always said, then don't. Mm-hmm. Do what it is that makes you happy. And if it's not being around everyone else, that's fine. And what's interesting is there's always everyone else who thinks they know better to say, you have to be around people, you have to do this. <laughs> and it's mm-hmm. like, but it's not that person's balance that's not how they find the balance Mm -hmm. so thank you so much for sharing that part you know it's like who you might want to be around and who you may not want to be around Mm -hmm. and giving people permission giving people permission to not be around yes Mm -hmm. yes it's so beautiful you know the whole concept of christmas it's interesting to watch as you brought up christina some of the changes how we've you know the media has brought us into certain things i want christmas lights and outdoor decorations for me are are the prime example of that. It seems like in many cases, uh, people are trying to outdo each other with more lights. So, for example, uh, the other day <laughs> I was going past a house and it, there was a beautiful nativity scene around the manger, but R2-D2 was there. <laughs> and, and I thought, okay, uh, you know, Christmas has moved on. So, James, uh, we've covered a lot today. We've talked about PTSD, and we've talked about stress and holidays, everything else. We're coming to the end of our show. Do you have a health tip for us? I think a a simple health tip would be to take a look at how you live your life day to day. Mm. Um, Get a sense in so doing about whether something basic may be missing, whether that is Mm. uh, exercise whether that is adequate nutrition, whether that is sleeping enough, whether that is um, perhaps um, being too isolated, not inviting in um, people who can um, be friends, who can be supports, especially at this time of year. Mm. So do a self-assessment and um, get a sense from that process about what you can do that's very simple. Uh, that will improve the quality of your life day to day. And then begin to work toward that change. Mm-hmm. I can make that an end-year resolution or a New Year's resolution in the coming weeks. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Beautiful, yes. Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, yeah, I was going to talk about resolutions and things, but I think we've run out of time. So as usual, <laughs> I think we're going to need to have you back again. Uh, We're very grateful to our very special guest, Dr. James Lake, for his wisdom and expertise and sharing his experience and good ideas as we approach the holidays and as we deal with some of the issues in our society today. I'd like to thank my teachers and healers for keeping me on my journey where I am today, and I look forward to getting together with everyone on Magical Medical Tour, Segovia and Yoga Hub, and all of our viewers and listeners around the world as we Look forward to exploring another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy. And until that time, thank you very much, Dr. Lake, and I wish you all optimal health. (laughs) Thank you so much, Dr. Glenn Woolman, and to you, Dr. Lake, uh, for joining us again and and honoring our global community with your expertise. It's it's wonderful. We still have to hear of your stories in Tibet. So, (laughs) My pleasure. Look forward to the next time. (laughs) Thank you so much. And of course, we would like to thank each and every one of you for joining us on this new platform of education and information. We're grateful for your continuous support, and we look forward to hearing your feedback on how we can serve you better. If you would like to connect with Dr. James Lake, you can do so through his website, the integrative mental health solution.com the integrative mental health solution.com and also you can connect with our Dr. Glenn Woolman through his website glennwoolman.com where you can learn about his metaphor square breath and also do give him a like on his new Facebook page which is the medical guide 
I hope that's right. <laughs> and of course, we are always grateful for your continuous feedback, comments, suggestions. Please give us a call or type it into the comment box. Um, 818-LET'S-TALK. 818-LET'S-TALK. Until next time, namaste. We, we know lots of things about them. We have a dialogue with these stressors. Um, but we don't often give them and give ourselves the opportunity to be free of one another. So there's no need to hide from what seems like it might be painful. We imagine that it's going to be painful to let some of those things rise up. We imagine that it's going to be painful to let some of those things sur surface. But perhaps it's not going to be if we get rid of the idea that it is going to be painful. <laughs>